Just first, let if you don't uh, know the uh, Bible, Peter was one of the first disciples of Jesus, one of the apostles, and we're looking at uh, the first of two letters that he wrote. And he's writing to early Christians who are facing growing hostility for their faith. And what we've seen in the first uh, bit of this letter is that he reminds them, he starts off by reminding them of all the things that God has done for them and will do for them in Christ. And we can apply it to ourselves. He's chosen you. He loves you. He has set you apart in Christ. He has given you a new, a new life and a new hope. But then as we saw last week, he sort of makes a turn. And what he says is, in view of all that God has done for you and will do for you, let that change the way you live. And as Ash said, he says, set your hope fully on God, on Christ. Don't be conformed to the desires of your old life, but be holy because God is holy. So those are some implications that come out of God choosing you, loving you, setting you apart. But in today's passage, we see Peter gives, them another, gives us another implication for our lives. And I think it is one that cuts across almost everything that our modern culture tells you to do. Okay, first point then, the life of fear. Okay, look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, to suggest that your life, that you should live your life with a pervasive sense of fear, that is arguably the antithesis of our modern way of thinking, isn't it? I mean, as Ash said at the beginning, Roosevelt famously declared, we have nothing to fear except fear itself. Superman arrives on the scene and says, have no fear, Superman is here. Christopher Reeve, who played Superman, said, living in fear, hey, that's not living at all. And we have clothing brands and bumper stickers declaring no fear. And if you think about it, our culture says, instead of living in fear, you should pursue self-belief. You should pursue confidence. You should pursue a refusal to fear. And yet I would argue that everyone is afraid of something, aren't they? Now you might respond to that and say, no, they're not. I mean, think of those people who engage in extreme sports, you know, people who throw themselves off mountains wearing these wingsuits or who scale these mountains unattached to anything. They're not living in fear. They're fearless. They've pushed through their fear. Sure, I would argue that they are still afraid of something. Because if I'm afraid of what they do, okay, they're afraid of what I do. I don't mean being a pastor. Okay, they're afraid of the normal. They're afraid of the boring life, the nine to five drudgery of life, the humdrum of life. They're afraid of being constrained. They're afraid of commitment. I remember chatting to one young man who was pushing himself to the edge as he pursued more and more extreme sports. 
And he said, don't tie me down. Don't cage me in. What does he fear? It's not danger, is it? Or not dangerous, we might understand it. What he feared was working in an office. Okay, he feared not experiencing the adrenaline rush or the dopamine high of living on the edge. We're all afraid of something. For you, it might be the fear of failure. It might be the fear of embarrassment. It might be the fear of what other people might think of you. It might be the fear of looking foolish. It could be the fear of losing your job and the insecurities that can come from that. I don't know if you saw in the press this week the um, tech entrepreneur who spends thousands of dollars a week and hours of his time on the quest to regain his teenage body. I couldn't think of anything worse. (laughs) Okay, why does he do that? Because he fears the decay, he fears decline, he fears what the Bible talks about, ultimately the fear of death. And he wants to push that off. So it's not whether or not you fear, it's what you fear. Okay, it's not whether or not fear will be a feature of your life, but which fear are you going to let shape you? And yet, if you think about it, courage and the determination to push through your fears is a virtue. In fact, for centuries of Christian thought, it's been argued that that courage is one of the cardinal virtues, if not the cardinal virtue. And the Bible repeatedly tells us, don't fear, don't be afraid. But if you think about it, to be courageous is not to pretend you have no fear. To be courageous is to fear the right things. You see, to have no fear would be to uh, live like a little girl that my colleagues and I, when I was a paediatrician, a little girl that my colleagues and I uh, looked after. And she was born with a condition that meant she had no perception of pain. Okay, there was just no perception of pain. Her parents first realized something was wrong when she began to learn to walk. And she walked straight into a glass door, fell over, picked herself up and laughed. Then she did it again and again and again. And everyone laughed with her until she began to hurt herself and she didn't notice. Pain has a purpose, doesn't it? And so does fear. Fear has the power to shape what you do and how you live. But if it's going to shape you in good ways, it's got to be a good fear. A fear that makes you choose the right and avoid the wrong. A fear that makes you courageous, not cowardly. A fear that causes you to form the deep relationships from which true happiness comes and not avoid them. A fear that causes you to step out in service of others rather than to fear the draw on yourself that that might require and to retreat into self-centeredness. In other words, you need a fear that leads to hope, not despair. A fear that leads to joy, not sorrow. A fear that leads to deeds that are good, 
not deeds that are evil. But is there such a fear? I mean, does such a fear exist, or is that just the land of make-believe? Does a fear exist that can so flavor your life that it produces those kind of good (laughs) fruits in your life? And Peter, in this passage, is saying, yes, there is. And it's the fear of God. And the book of Proverbs, which we read from in our responsive reading this morning, you might think of the book of Proverbs as being like the wisdom of the ancients. The book of Proverbs agrees with Peter because it says that while the fear of man is a snare, and we could group a whole load of our fears under that title of the fear of man, while the fear of man is a snare, the fear of the Lord, that leads to life. In fact, if you read the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord has the power to shape the whole of your life in great ways. Okay, but what Peter does here in this passage, he drills down further on this idea of the fear of God. And he says it's the fear of your heavenly father. Verse 17 again. If you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, if the idea of living our lives with a pervasive sense of fear, if that seems alien in our modern world, what about coupling fear to father? Because that sounds like abuse, doesn't it? Except Peter's not talking about terror. I'll give you another example from my uh, previous life. He's not talking about the kind of fear that I saw in the face of a sweet little boy, probably about five years old, who was admitted to our hospital with signs of abuse, bruising across his face and his limbs. And I sat on his bed after he'd been brought in, uh, just chatting to him. And uh, he was chatting away happily until the door behind me opened. And I couldn't see who walked in, but he could. But what I could see was the look of fear on his face as he froze and watched Who came in? His father. Peter's not talking about that kind of fear of a father. He's not talking about the kind of fear that doesn't know when the next fist will land or when the next outburst of anger will erupt. He's not talking of the fear that goes to bed not knowing whether your dad will be there in the morning or not. He is talking of a fear that dispels every other fear. A fear that fills your heart with confidence and with courage, because it is a fear that firstly is born not of the terror of a father, but of the affection of the father. You see, did you notice what Peter says? He says, if you call on him as father, not if you call him father, But if you call on him as father, because when you know that God, your heavenly father, has chosen you and he has loved you and he has set you apart and he has given you new life and new hope and an inheritance in Christ. What do you do with that? You call on him. You know he loves you. You know he cares for you. So you bring all of your hurts, all of your needs, all of your problems to him because you know that your life is in his good hands. And because he loves you like that, you don't want to disgrace him. 
You want to honour him. I was thinking about this this morning. Well, we, we even prayed it this morning in the Lord's Prayer. How do we begin the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, hallowed be your name. I know you are my Father, so may your name be hallowed. I know you love me, so I want to honour you. I want to glorify you. I don't want to disgrace you. In fact, I fear to grieve you. You see, elsewhere, this word fear is translated as respect. But I think the translators have got it right here. Because Peter's talking about something more than just the respect somebody might have for a distant father. He's got that love that fears any distance from the one you love in mind. A love that at one and the same time stands in awe knowing it is unworthy to approach and yet can't hold back and must approach. A reverence that dares not reach out and touch, but just feels something welling up that it must reach out and more than touch, take hold of. A fear that knows that you are loved by one so fearful and yet so beautiful and so lovely, and you know you've done nothing to deserve that love, and so you love fearfully in response. So right fear, Peter says, firstly is born of the Father's affection for you, but secondly is born of his authority. Verse 17 again, if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Your father loves you, Peter says, but that doesn't mean he plays favorites. It doesn't mean that you can just live your life however you want to live. Now just think for a moment how the people that Peter is writing to may have wanted God to play favorites, how they may have wanted God to be partial, because they are facing growing pressure for being Christians. And as a result, they're probably paying a price relationally or even financially, a cost for their faith. What happens when life is difficult? What happens when you're facing trials in life like that? Temptation comes along, doesn't it? Think about what those temptations might be. Okay, maybe they are facing the mockery of their friends. Maybe some of you do in, in the lab or uh, on campus or in your workplace. You're facing the mockery of friends and in comes the temptation to compromise, to just stay quiet about your faith. Maybe they're facing the loss of friends and in comes the temptation to self-pity. Maybe they're facing the hostility of colleagues and in comes the temptation to answer their rudeness with your own rudeness. They face being shut out of business and paying a price financially and in comes the temptation to hold on to your finances and to look after number one. And on the heel of all of those temptations comes the temptation to think, if I give in to that temptation, God will understand. He'll, he'll, he'll forgive me. He'll turn a blind eye. He'll give me a free pass. He's my father. He loves me after all. Now think how we might do that or think similarly to that. He knows how much stress I'm under at the moment. 
or he knows how she spoke to me, or he knows the hurt that I'm carrying, he knows how much I need this thing, he'll turn a blind eye, he'll excuse this. And hey, listen, God does know, and God does understand, and God is overflowing and abundant in love and mercy and forgiveness, but he's not partial. And people say that the love, that love is blind, but not the love of the Father. He never says, oh, you're my child. I'll turn a blind eye to that. Instead, Peter says, fear him, your father, as the one who judges your deeds. But it's worth saying here, isn't it, that he, he is not your father because of your deeds, and you, it's not that you can call on him as father because you've clocked up enough good deeds to make you worthy of being able to call upon him or to earn his love. You know, religion may say that, but not Christianity. Instead, because he loves you, because he's your father, because you can call upon him, knowing that your life is in his good hands, you can live your life and do good deeds. Those good deeds are the fruit. They're not the root of the fact that you have been chosen and loved and set apart. They're the evidence that he really is your father. Okay, so Peter says, this fear of God doesn't leave you paralyzed with fear. Because there is a fear like that, isn't there? As Ash alluded to, there is a fear. Maybe, you know, if you've got a tyrannical boss, or tyrannical parent, okay, you may fear to step out and do things lest you fail, lest you be punished. But this isn't a fear that dares not dare lest it be punished for failure. This is a fear that dares to risk, that dares to commit, that dares to do good deeds, that dares to spend itself in service of others, a fear that shows itself in the kind of good deeds that stand up to the Father's judgment, a fear that flows from the affection and the authority of the Father. And Peter says, live like that, verse 17, throughout the time of your exile. Now, I think one of the problems of living in Switzerland, let's be honest about this, you, you can grow to like it, can't you? I mean, you can grow to like living here. Okay, maybe, you, maybe you got posted here by your company and you thought, yeah, that would be a good step. Yeah, that would be a good step up the ladder. Help me climb some further steps up the ladder. But you get here, and after a while, you start thinking, hmm, I rather like it here. You know, this step on the ladder doesn't seem so bad, actually. I don't think I need to climb up the ladder any further than this step. There's a friend of mine, uh, Dick Mordike, who was one of our previous elders, said to me, he said, Switzerland is the graveyard of ambition. Okay, and... <laughs> And I mean, you, you know, you've been here for a while, and what starts happening, weird things start happening to you, don't you, don't they? You start thinking that a diet of bread and melted cheese is a balanced diet. <laughs> and far from not making any noise after 10 p.m. being oppressive, it begins to seem eminently sensible to you. <laughs> okay, what is happening? You're beginning to conform. You're beginning to like it. You're beginning to feel like this is home. You're no longer seeing yourself as an exile, as an outsider. And Peter is saying, 
That's not what we as Christians should do spiritually. The world as it is now is not home. Instead, we're waiting for our true home. Bishop Ambrose of Milan was the guy who had this profound impact on the life of Augustine. And he said that we are to use the time, this life we have now, as those who know they are setting out from here. Okay, it's fascinating. In other words, this life in this world isn't where you finish your journey. This is where you start. Now, after a big hike, you've been hiking in the mountains and you get back to the car, you get back to the house. What do you do? You take your boots off, don't you? And you say, oh, man, that is good to get those off. And you start rubbing your feet and uh, you run a hot shower or you, you know, sink into the sofa. You pour yourself a, a glass of wine if you're a Presbyterian and a glass of cold water if you're a Baptist. And, and you relax, don't you? Okay, why? Because you've reached your destination. Is that how you behave when you start your hike? No. When you start, you take out your map and you plan your route. You check the weather. You fill your water bottle with water, not wine. You put on your boots and you take your coat. The way you conduct yourself depends entirely on whether you think you've arrived or whether you are just setting out. And Peter and Ambrose are saying, guys, we're just setting out from here. This is not our destination. This is not our home. This is where we set out for home. And as you travel, let the affection of the Father and the authority of your Father and the reverent fear that flows from those two things season all that you do. Okay, but there's another reason that Paul says that we should live in reverent fear. And that is, second point, the price of redemption. Okay, look at verses 17 to 19. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now just imagine that you are helping a friend move a piece of furniture. And you know, because they've told you, that this piece of furniture is seriously expensive. It is valuable. And you're helping them move it. Or imagine that you are carrying something that has great, um, uh, great sentimental value for you. Does knowing the value of this thing that you are carrying change the way that you behave? Of course it does. I mean, if you are, imagine you're in the kitchen, okay, and you are putting away a plastic pot that you bought for Ikea for a few francs. How do you put it away? You just chuck it in the cupboard with all the other plastic pots from Ikea, don't you? If that is a priceless Ming vase, how do you handle that vase? Do you handle it differently? Of course you do. You watch every movement. The value of what you are dealing with seriously affects the way you behave. And Peter is saying, yeah, and it's like that with your life. 
You've not been ransomed with silver and gold, though those have their own value. You have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, something so priceless, something so valuable that you cannot put a price on it. Okay, but what does it mean to be ransomed? That you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, to buy a slave's freedom, to redeem them from slavery, either the slave himself or a friend or a family member had to pay a sum of money called a ransom. And when they did, the slave could go free. From now on, he's a free man because the ransom's been paid. Okay, if that's what they might have understood or their culture would have understood by being ransomed, Peter is almost certainly got something else in mind as well because they've been ransomed, we've been ransomed, he says, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And on the night when God redeemed the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, he told them to do what? To take a lamb without blemish, same words, slaughter it and paint its blood on the doorposts. And it was that blood that protected them from God's wrath as God's wrath was poured out on their slave masters. The lamb died, so they didn't. It paid the price so they could go free. And Peter's saying that is what Christ has done for you. God has given the thing that is of greatest worth to him, his son, to rescue and redeem you from slavery. Let that profoundly influence the way you live. Conduct yourselves with fear, he says. And if you've seen it, the film Saving Private Ryan ends, I think, in this incredibly moving scene where Ryan is standing in front of the gravestone of Captain Miller, who's the leader of the a group of men who gave their lives to save Ryan. And as he's standing in front of this gravestone in one of the war cemeteries, his wife comes to stand by his side. And Ryan turns to her and says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Why does he need to know that? Because he knows his life was bought at great cost and he has tried to live worthy of that. And Peter's saying, do you know what? Your life has been bought at far greater cost even than that. It has been bought. The price tag you are carrying, if you like, is the infinitely valuable cost of Christ's life. That's what you're carrying. So live a life worthy of that, not to earn it. You never could. Not to try and deserve it. You never could. But precisely because you don't deserve it. Which, if you think about it, makes it all the more valuable. Okay, but if, like ancient Israel, we have been ransomed and redeemed, what have you been ransomed and redeemed from? If to be ransomed and redeemed is to be ransomed and redeemed from slavery, what's your slavery? What have we been enslaved to? Well, Peter says, verse 18, you, he's talking to them, we can apply it to ourselves, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. 
And something is futile when it's useless, when it doesn't do what you want it to do, when it's a pointless waste of time or energy. And Peter has almost certainly got in mind pagan religious practices. Think how they would have lived this out. They want a, they want a good harvest, so what do they do? They sacrifice to the god of good harvests. You want protection on the journey that you're going on. So you buy off the god of protection and of safe journeys. You want vengeance on that person who has wronged you. So you place an image of that person under the nose of the god of vengeance. But the gods are capricious, aren't they? They're always changing their minds. They're given to mood swings. So you have to keep those gods on your side. And Peter's saying, hey, those ways are futile. They're useless. They don't work. Worse than don't work, they alienate you from the one true God. And so they have an enslaving, controlling effect on people's lives. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, you might hear that sort of thing about you know, making these sacrifices to idols and think, well, thank goodness we live in more enlightened times and we don't need to feel the need to do any of that stuff. But don't you? Really? What about the, what about the idols and the gods that we sacrifice to? Or those gods that we look to, to, to trust, to get what we want from life? like the gods of public opinion, or the gods of career progression, or the gods of sexual pleasure. That these gods that we make sacrifices to, that we try and pay off, that we hope that if we appease them in some way, if we give ourselves to them, then we'll get the kind of life that we want. That if I can just get this thing to work for me, life will be good. And think how the same things that we thought would bring us freedom and the life that we want end up controlling us and enslaving us. In fact, the pursuit of freedom itself, the throwing off of all the rules, becomes what J. Budziswesky, okay, I think that's a Scottish name, Colin. <laughs> and I thought Slack was an awkward surname. Okay, he's professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas. He calls it an enslaving liberation. It's a professor of philosophy, an enslaving liberation. We become enslaved to the very things that seem to promise us freedom. And Peter is saying that just as God heard the cry of Israel in slavery in Egypt, so he sees us and he loved us. And he chose us and he sent his son to redeem us at infinite cost so that he would be our ransom to bring us out into true freedom. The freedom to fear the right fear. Okay, but then he gives us one last reason to conduct ourselves with fear, just briefly. And it's the weight of eternity. Peter says we should conduct ourselves with fear because we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. But then he adds, verses 20 and 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I read an article a couple of weeks back about a man who is waiting for his invitation to the coronation of Charles III 
And with that invitation, he's expecting will come the instructions for the role that he will play in the coronation. And interestingly, he's not expecting this invitation because he's a member of the aristocracy. He's not rich, he's not famous, he's not a celebrity. The reason he's expecting this invitation is because a member of his family has taken part in every coronation of every British monarch since the crowning of William the Conqueror in 1066. That's quite a claim, isn't it? Okay, and reading it, you could just tell that he knew that when that invitation came, it wouldn't be about him. It would be about something much greater. It would be about a king and an unbroken line stretching back in time. And Peter is saying, you too have been caught up in a line stretching back in time. The great flow of God's story of redemption in which you are the next link. Because when he says that Christ was foreknown before the founding of the world, he doesn't just mean that God the Father and God the Son knew each other. Of course they do. He means that God's plan of redemption was never plan B. It was never an afterthought like, oh my goodness, look what humanity has done now. Son, I think you're going to have to go down there and sort it out. We need to come up with a plan. No, from before he even created us, God foreknew that in doing so, he would launch a rescue mission, a mission that would cost the life of his son. And all the great tide of human history is all about that rescue mission. And Peter says, you're caught up in it. You're the next link in the story. To you has been passed the baton to pass it on again. And when Christ came, Peter says, when he was made manifest, he did so, verse 20, for the sake of you. It was for your sake that he came. And yet, ultimately, it's not about you, is it? It's about something far greater. It too is about a king. Because it's to Jesus, Peter says, that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Who gets the glory? It's him. And our hope and our confidence are not in ourselves, they're in him. So, let a right fear season your life, Peter says, because you know the affection of the Father. And you know the authority of the Father. And you know that you carry within you something of infinite value. And you have been redeemed at infinite cost. And you stand with the weight of eternity and the glory of the King bearing down on you. So fear and fear not. Let's pray.